Please remain standing and uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be reading uh, verses uh, 23 through 25. When Mike asked me to preach this Sunday, I said, well, do you want me to take Leviticus? Uh, he said, no, you better leave that to the pros. <laughs> So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. This is what God says. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, and let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. A little boy brought home a very bad report card one day, and as his father was looking over these failing grades, the little boy asked, Dad, what do you think is responsible for this bad report card? Heredity or the environment? Well, in many ways, the church today has brought home a bad report card. It's not holy enough, it's not as loving and inclusive as it should be. Uh, it doesn't uh, always glorify God. And it doesn't meet the needs of people. Increasingly we see that the church's influence in society is diminishing. Witness people's attitudes today about things like hard work, personal responsibility, same-sex marriage, abortion, or morality in general. And everywhere the cry goes up, what is responsible for the church's bad report card? What is responsible for this sad state of affairs in the church? Wrong question. Did you notice that when the little boy asked that question, he was trying to disown any personal responsibility for his bad report card? That is what we do when we ask what is responsible for the church's bad report card. What we should be asking is who is responsible for the church's bad report card. And the truth of the matter is, to the extent that the church is failing in this country, it is largely because we as individual members of the church have let it down. The responsibility for the sad state of affairs in the church today lays squarely on your shoulders and mine. You see, the Bible describes the church as a body that is made up of many different members, all 
functioning together in many different ways for the benefit of the whole. But many individual Christians have become apathetic in some cases and downright paralyzed in others. Have you ever heard of the 80-20 principle? That's a principle that states that in any given church, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Now, how effective as a person would you be if only 20% of your body parts work? As individual Christians, we can choose to be a part of the problem or a part of the solution. You see, the Bible says that every Christian has a responsibility. This isn't optional. Every Christian has a responsibility to help other Christians grow in Christ. If people in the church are not growing in Christ, it's not because the church as an institution has failed. It's because individual members of the church have failed to fulfill their responsibility to help one another grow in Christ. After all, the church is only the sum of all of its individual members. A long time ago, I saw an episode of the Red Fox show. Some of you older people will remember that the Red Fox was a comedian that usually played roles in which he was portrayed as a mean, old, cranky man. Think of Bob Beatty on steroids. <laughs> I told Bob I was going to zing him today. In any case, Red was the owner of a store or something, and one of his employees was trying to get him to take responsibility for a little homeless child who uh, had taken up residence in front of their store. Red wanted no part of it. And the employee, finally, inspired by the righteousness of her cause, drew herself up and she quoted, no man is an island. John Dunn, 1623. To which Red Fox retorted, I am what I am and that's all that I am. Popeye, 1949. <laughs> In other words, he didn't care about other people and he wasn't interested in changing either. And I'm afraid there are too many Popeye Christians in the church today, people who don't care about others and aren't interested in changing. But the Bible knows nothing of this solitary kind of religion. If we belong to Christ, then we also belong to the body of Christ, the church. And we have a God-given mutual responsibility to help one another grow in Christ. So how can we help one another to grow in Christ? Well, our text this morning mentions three responsibilities 
that each of us as Christians has to help other Christians grow in Christ. The first way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ is by fulfilling our responsibility to persevere in hope. Notice in verse 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. This is a call not only to persevere in hope, but also to witness. The two are inextricably tied to one another. I've heard people say, I can't witness. But the truth of the matter is that they can and they do. The only question is, what kind of a witness are they? You see, when we persevere in hope, we witness to others around us that the Christian life is worth living and that God is faithful. When we fail to persevere in hope, we witness to others that the Christian life is not worth living and that God is unfaithful. Regardless of how we feel, whether we like it or not, the way we live affects other people. And the way we live will either encourage people to grow in Christ, or it will discourage them from growing in Christ. A long time ago, J. Oswald Sanders, a preacher and a writer from New Zealand, was visiting here in Little Rock, and I had the opportunity of meeting with him for lunch along with four other pastors. Now, this man was 82 years old at the time. And after lunch, we asked him if he would share something from God's Word with us. And we thought, of course, that he would talk to us about the ministry, about something practical. But instead, what he did was he turned to Galatians 5.22, and for an hour, over an hour, he shared with us his struggle to grow in joy and peace and love and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. I was just amazed and greatly encouraged. I mean, here was a man, 82 years old, already considered to be a godly man, but still striving to grow in Christ. What he witnessed to us that day was that the Christian life is worth living and that God is faithful. We're told to persevere in hope, to hold unswervingly to this hope. We're told that for two reasons. First of all, we are to persevere in hope because God has made it possible for us to do Sometimes we come to these texts without looking at what comes before. But look at what the writer of Hebrews says, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over 
the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's why we persevere in hope, because of everything that God has already done for us to make that possible. But secondly, we persevere in hope because none of us will attain in this life to everything that Jesus died for us to do. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever given permission to stop persevering in hope. Nowhere in Scripture are we given permission to retire from persevering in hope. Listen, Franklin D. Roosevelt was the one who invented retirement, not God. So if you're a Democrat, we'll have to make alliances. <laughs> but if you're a Republican, you need to persevere in hope. The church needs you. Now, living a long life can be a great blessing. I love uh, the resolutions that Jonathan Edwards wrote. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century theologian, preacher, perhaps best known by people today for uh, writing and preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But when he was in his early 20s, over a period of about three or four months, he wrote out a series of resolutions that he was going to live his life by. And he would read these to himself once a week just to remind himself of the path that he had chosen to walk in this life. Let me read you just a few of these resolutions. Resolve, and, and keep in mind, this is a 20-year-old young man. Resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve never to do anything but duty, and then, according to Ephesians 6, 6 through 8, do it willingly and cheerfully as unto the Lord, and not to man. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. And my favorite of all was his resolution to live for God. And even if no one else does, I still will. Now to his credit, and by the mercy and the grace of God that we just read about, Jonathan Edwards was true to those resolutions. He persevered in hope to the end of his life. And he was a great encouragement 
to others that the Christian life was worth living and that God is faithful. Living a long life can be a great blessing, but there is also a great danger in living a long life because the longer we live, the more tempted we are to drop out. The more tempted we are to stop persevering in hope. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book called The Screwtape Letters, which purports to be from a senior demon to a younger demon, giving him advice about how to tempt his charge. And in one of these letters, Screwtape writes this to the younger demon. He says, the enemy, that is God, the enemy has guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. It is so hard for us to persevere in hope. But we must. Because that witnesses to other people that the Christian life is worth living and that God is faithful. So the first way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ is by fulfilling our responsibility to persevere in hope. The second way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ is by fulfilling our responsibility to provoke one another. In verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur, or some of your translations say provoke and others say stir up, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The word for spur or provoke or stir up here is a strong one. Think of spurring a horse. Christians are called to strongly provoke one another. There is nothing timid or tentative about this. Now, to some of you, this will come as good news because you've been provoking people for years and you didn't even realize it was a biblical call. Well, not exactly, because you'll notice that what we are called to is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now, sometimes when we provoke one another to love and good deeds, that does generate anger in the one being provoked. But anger is never the goal of the provoker. Love and good deeds are. And by the way, if you're the one who is being provoked to love and good deeds, you need to keep in mind 
uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, where it says that love is not provoked. In other words, don't let someone else provoking you to love and good deeds generate anger within you. Let me give you a couple of examples of uh, people in the church provoking uh, one another. Alice Moore was a member of the Covenant Presbyterian Church when I became the first associate pastor there. She was also a member of our community group that met in North Little Rock and that eventually uh, became a church plant, which became this church. Now, Alice was one of the sweetest people I've ever met. She was uh, married to a handsome Air Force major. She had two beautiful kids. And then one day she left her husband and her kids for another man. The senior pastor at Covenant and I called Alice. We tried to get her to do what God would want her to do, to repent of her sin, to be reconciled to her husband and children, and she wouldn't listen to us. After a while, she wouldn't even take our phone call. But a year later, Alice was back with her husband and her children. And the reason she was, was because another member of the church at Covenant, who hardly knew Alice at all, had chosen to provoke Alice to love and good deeds. She wrote Alice a letter. This uh, lady, by the way, was, uh, will come to no, as no surprise to any of you who knew her, uh, was Marianne Miller. If anyone ever had a gift for provoking uh, people, Marianne uh, had it. But Marianne wrote Alice this letter. She says, Dear Alice, your Christmas card and note came as quite a shock to me, as I was unaware that you were separated from me. Please allow me to ask you some pertinent questions in response to your remarks. I do so in fear of hurting you, but also in love for you and your children and it and for our Lord Jesus. I deeply desire that his name not be blasphemed, ridiculed, or scorned by the Hebrews. When we take the name Christian, then we must be extremely careful to show the fruit of obedience, or we're taking his name in vain. Jesus identifies his own as he that hath my commandments, and obeys them, is the one that loves them. What is your scriptural ground for separation and for breaking your vows of marriage you made before men and God? If you have no biblical grounds, then you have no excuse. Where in scripture did you acquire the idea that the purpose of your marriage or your life was your hands? God did not put you here to be comfortable, but to glorify him by being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That takes suffering, rejection, humiliation, and pain, all of which he endured for you, Alice, for your salvation, justification, and sanctification, which is a daily process of refining, purifying, and being made holy. Alice told me how angry that letter made her. 
when she first received it. And yet, it was this letter that God used to cause her to be reconciled to her husband and to her family and to repent of her sin. Alice is the one who gave me this letter and gave me permission to use it if I thought it would be a benefit to everyone. God didn't use the senior pastor or me to bring about repentance in Alice's heart. He just used another Christian who was fulfilling her responsibility to promote another Christian to love and good deeds. I remember sitting in my office another time and uh, a man walked in, a member of our church, a lawyer. I tell this story so that we can realize that lawyers are Christians too. Uh, <laughs> or can be. <laughs> Anyhow, he came into my office and he said, did you know so-and-so is in the hospital? And I said, yes. And he said, have you been by to pray for him today? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, I think we need to go and pray for him right now. And I thought, listen, buddy, uh, I'm the pastor here. Uh, you see that diploma behind my desk? It says I'm the master of divinity. And I will decide who gets prayed for and when in this church. But I didn't do that. Instead, I went and we prayed for this man. And it was just what that man needed that day. And it's just what I needed to be doing, but wouldn't have done if I hadn't been provoked to love and good deeds. Now, I don't like being provoked any more than anybody else does, but can you imagine what the Church of Jesus Christ in this country would look like if every Christian were provoking other Christians to love and good deeds? So the second way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ is by fulfilling our responsibilities to provoke one another, provoke one another to love and good deeds. And the final way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ is by fulfilling our responsibility to pull together. And I mean pull together in the sense of coming together. And by the way, uh, let me say that I'm, I'm preaching this message in a sense as a preventative uh, rather than as a corrective, because I think in our church, particularly when it comes to this point, we have an excellent record. Uh, I don't know exactly how many members we have, but uh, it doesn't exceed a hundred. Is that right, Lord? And yet, we have over 105 people who have signed up for our community groups. In other words, we have almost 100%, perhaps, even more than 100% participation in community groups. So I think uh, at this point in the life of the church, we're, we're doing very well in this regard of pulling together, of coming uh, together for, for worship and fellowship. Now, the text 
It says, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The text doesn't tell us why some of these early Christians had given up the assembling of themselves uh, together, but I'm sure they had many of the same excuses that we have today. Uh, we're, we're too busy. Um, well, listen, even if you came to every stated meeting, meeting of the church, uh, that would uh, probably take up less than 3 or 4% of your time during the week. It's not our meetings at the church that are creating the busyness in people's lives. And many Christians don't even spend that amount of time with other Christians in fellowship and worship. I remember one lady told me one time, well, it's just such a hassle to get the kids uh, dressed and uh, to get to church. And I thought, sure. Uh, you know, everywhere else, you can get up and go any place you want naked. Uh, it's only on Sundays that you have to wake up and get dressed. <laughs> why, why, why does God make it so hard? And, and, and I'm sure you've heard this one. Uh, I just don't get anything out of it. Well, there may be a lot of reasons for that. But it misses the point of why we are told to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The reason that we're to pull together is to encourage one another. This is what the early Christians did in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, where we have a brief description of what uh, worship service was like at that time. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, and all of these things must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, we won't go into all of those aspects of a worship service, but the point is, whereas today many Christians come to church empty, waiting to be filled, the early church members came full, waiting to share, wanting to share, their relationship with God and Jesus Christ with the rest of the congregation. In fact, in that same passage, the Apostle Paul doesn't have to encourage participation in church. What he has to do is limit it. Uh, we don't need this many people doing this. We don't need this many people. Just let a few of you do this and, and do the other thing. That's what he's doing in this text. In other words, they were all ready when they came to church to participate and to share their personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ with one another. I remember listening to uh, a Romanian one time speaking about how the church in Romania had survived communist rule there. And he said, nobody knew who was going to be in church on Sunday. Any one of us could be arrested. And therefore, everybody prepared to preach. So when they came to church, everybody was there to help encourage the others. That is the purpose that we are told to come together in worship, in fellowship at our community groups. The purpose is not for what we get out of it, but for what we can do to encourage others. And of course, the flip side of that is that when we do come, we are encouraged ourselves. All of us have had that experience of not wanting to go to church and you go anyhow, and afterwards, you're very glad you did. Because you have come closer to God. 
you come closer to Jesus Christ and you come closer uh, to other Christians. Have you ever noticed that, that when you're out uh, camping and uh, you make a campfire, that if you take one of the embers out of the fire and put it over to the side, that that ember goes out much sooner than the whole fire. And the same is true for Christians. I've never known any Christian that willingly decided that he was no longer going to fellowship and worship with the church that remained spiritually aflame. Remember the banana. When it left the bunch, it got peeled. <laughs> so the third way that we can help other Christians grow in Christ and the Christian life is by pulling together to encourage one another. You know, I think one of the big hindrances to us adopting this model of church life is because in our country we have this culture of rugged individualism. It's everyone for himself. I mean, look at our heroes. The Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger. Time for doesn't count. Dirty Harry. In that series of movies. Rambo. I mean, who needs an army when you've got Rambo? Bruce Willis in Die Hard. These guys are exciting to watch, but they're not good role models when it comes to deciding how we should interact with one another in the church. These are people that don't need anybody else. These are people that don't feel like they have a responsibility to be team players. About three weeks ago, there was a terrorist attack on a magazine in Paris. And immediately the French responded with solidarity with those victims. You saw the phrase everywhere, I am Charlie. They identified with the people who had suffered. Well, that was just the French being French. I mean, after all, it's the French who gave us the three musketeers. And you'll all remember the motto of the Three Musketeers. All for one and one for all. The Three Musketeers are much better role models for us in the church. Because you see, the Bible describes the church as a body that is made up of many different members, all functioning in many different ways for the benefit of the whole. As Christians, we not only belong to Christ, but we belong to one another in the church. And we have a God-given mutual responsibility to help one another grow in Christ in the years ahead. My hope is that we will grow together in Christ to the glory of God. I need you. That's how I get the word. Heavenly Father, 
uh, we thank you that you have adopted us into our family. Father, we love you. We worship you. You are our Father. But you have given us brothers and sisters as well. Lord, may you increase our love for you, but for one another in the body as well. Father, that our witness here at Trinity might be that the Christian life is worth living, that God is faithful, that the world might see how we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray.